Have a seat, y'all. Good morning. My name is Nate. I am one of the pastors here. We have been studying together for the last several weeks a series on how we are supposed to live. We call them spiritual disciplines, the rhythms, the routines, the things we do that shape and that form us. And this morning, my heart is so full. We have just worshiped the almighty God. My emotions are keyed up. I am excited. I feel it. And when you feel that energy, there's a natural desire to respond in some way, to channel that. And we can channel it just strictly through emotional uh, cheering or shouting. I mean, that's what happens at sporting events, right? We get excited, we cheer, we shout, we yell. We have this moment, this, this catharsis, this thing inside of us that, 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 that comes out, and then, and then we feel like, okay, now, now I can relax. But this morning, I want to encourage us to take all of that spiritual energy, all of that emotion, and I want us to focus on channeling it in a different direction. As we continue on in this series about being like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did, this morning we're going to take a look at how we're supposed to live. Last week we talked about being like Jesus, being filled with his spirit and having his spirit transform us that we are individually and collectively being molded into the image of his son. So now if we are going to be like Jesus, that ought to have a consequence, that ought to have an outworking in our lives, that we should start to do the things that Jesus did. And I am not likely to turn water into wine this morning, and neither are you likely to walk on water. So what does it mean? What are we supposed to do with this in the real world, in our lives, this week, Today, tomorrow, this month, this year, how do we live? And it's with that in mind, if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, that's page 574 in your blue Bibles. If you uh, see one of those blue Bibles, if you do not have a Bible and you would like to take that, that is our gift to you. And we'll be reading from page 574 of that today. And as I was searching through the New Testament to find a passage that summed up how Jesus lived and the things that Jesus would want us to do. This is one that really caught my heart. And as we work through it this morning, I want us to keep in mind what Paul says here in the first two verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you receive from us how you ought to live and please God, just as you're doing, that you ought to do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So keep in mind the spirit in which Paul's writing this to the church. And as I think that same spirit certainly would apply, and I would certainly affirm it for all of you, which is, first of all, a lot of the things that Jesus wants us to do, we already know. And number two, many of you are already doing them. So as we share these things this morning, keep in mind that I am not telling you to do something new that you haven't been doing. I'm not coming down on you saying, you guys got to do better at this stuff. No, I'm saying do it more and more. You've already know these things. You've already learned these things. But also, the instructions we gave you were given through the Lord Jesus. So in other words, the same thing that Paul tells the church, he told them that through the Lord Jesus. This is what Jesus wants of you. If you ever ask yourself the question, what does God want out of me? 
How am I supposed to live? What am I supposed to do? How do I respond to these things that I hear? You tell me about grace and the love of God and transformation of my life. Well, what does that look like? What does that mean? It looks and means like this. Exactly what we're going to talk about today. And if there's one big idea that I have for today, it's just this. That doing what Jesus did, I do what Jesus did by obeying the instructions he left for us. It's pretty simple. It's a pretty simple idea, right? If I want to do what Jesus wants me to do, I'll just obey the instructions that he left for us. So this morning, I've asked uh, other men and women who are leaders in our church to come and share about how they try to live out some of these principles in their own lives. Because these instructions were not just given to your pastors or just to your leaders, but to all of us. And so as we read through these verses, keep in mind, these are things that are already to be expected of us. And now we're going to encourage each other to do them more and more. Take a look at verse 3. We're going to start off with a big one. For this is the will of God. Whoa, right? That's what? Raise your hand if you've ever wanted to know God's will for your life. I want to know God's will for my life. What is God's will for my life? Here it is. I'm going to tell you. This Sunday morning you came to church and you heard God's will for your life. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, you being set apart for something special. That's what sanctification means. You were set apart. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I'd like to ask Jeff and Jackie Richter to come up and share with us a little bit. Jeff and Jackie, for those of you who don't know, are deacons here. They're servants of the church. They're MC leaders. They're friends that I dearly love. They're people that encourage me that I admire, people that have taught me things, people that have encouraged my heart. And I think that this is uh, an area in which they really have a lot to, to encourage all of us. Hey, guys. <laughs> Looking back on my life, before truly living in repentance, purity has often been a struggle. <laughs> I defined it by a multiple or a multitude of external influences, and they were they were everything other than what Christ and His Word says. It was more about, well, I'm not going to do this um, sin or engage in that behavior. But maybe purity isn't a big deal, um, since it seems to work out fine for some people. In a way, I began to justify certain actions by measuring my purity um, according to what the world standards were and what culture indicated was appropriate for a relationship. Purity was surely a long-suffering battle before true repentance. Matthew 5.20 says, For I tell you, 
Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In my journey of purity, this verse is the perfect summation of the foolishness of my previous life. As I made feeble attempts to follow every biblical command and be an example to my peers, adhere to God's wishes and live a life of moral compass dictated by scripture. I received great personal satisfaction from the fact that I was respected as a guy that was striving for purity. I was trying. I was trying really, really hard. So through this battle, uh, God's grace and patience was, like, with me still shown. Um, He used his scripture and godly influences to teach me that I couldn't just cherry pick, you know, what obedience looked like as a Christ follower, especially in terms of my purity. Um, John 14 says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I finally saw that I needed to have faith in Christ and accept his grace, um, which would allow me to honor him with my body, um, my thoughts, in my actions, a pure way of life had to be a life filled with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> and I wanted to invite that in, not turn away from it. In all of my striving, I missed out on the biggest truth. My righteousness and justification came not from how well I adhered to Scripture's commands in a given day, but how well I trusted in being justified by Christ's blood. Some people may have spent their whole life feeling as if they don't deserve God's free gift of grace. I, on the other hand, was the one who felt entitled to God's grace because of my so-called purity. Romans 3 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I continually remind myself that my obedience is a result of my faith and God's work in me. Instead of the constant pressure of measuring up to Christ's commands, there's a freedom in the fact that Christ has set me free and done the work already on my behalf. I finally believe that God really did do this for me in spite of my sin and not by my own merit. Realizing I wasn't an A-plus Christian, but as Paul says, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the foremost is a sentiment I truly have come to believe. I'm not talking about fake humility, but rather a true recognition of the repulsiveness of my sin. I thank God for opening my eyes to this. Living in and walking through this purity as a wife to Jeff is a daily opportunity to be, to be a willing teammate, not just someone stuck in stubborn rebellion, um, but to be with Jeff and inviting Christ to guide us and protect us from the lies of Satan and the people that may try to warp God's truth um, in our lives. Christ's word is 
the lamp to our feet and the light to our path. And through his strength and not our own, um, we continue to walk this path alert to the pitfalls, yet also free in the grace of God. We love him so much. Living humbly as a husband to Jackie is my toughest task, to which I am desperate for God's grace. As it gives me the correct lens to view the ongoing spiritual battle as I lead our marriage. The battle is this. Satan would love nothing more than to destroy our marriage and all of Christian marriage as a whole. After all, this is the, de- the depiction to the world of how Christ loves his church faithfully, selflessly, and with the utmost purity. Thankfully, I don't have to lead from my own strength, but in humility as we invite God to renew our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that are passionate about a pure and holy marriage. Yeah, that's cool. You can clap. Absolutely. Look, we live. It, look, we all we all saw the news. Let's not pretend like we didn't know the things that are going on in the world around us. We live in a world that weaponizes sex. It weaponizes purity. We live in a world that has completely different standards for men and for women. We live in a world that loves to throw sexual past into each other's face. We love. We live in a world that doesn't want to hear about pain and injustice that wants to have no consequences except for the other guy, that only cares about what people do when they belong to the other party. But when they're on our side, the rules change completely. Vote the way I want, and I'll turn my head, and you can exploit anyone. And every side is guilty. So much so that we feel like there isn't even any way to untangle these things. There's not even any hope. Look, we're going to talk about sexual purity this morning because God's talking about sexual purity. I decided we were going to preach over this passage several weeks ago. I didn't know it was going to be the front page of every, of every newspaper. It's not me and it's not Jeff or Jackie that are asking you to respect each other. Because that's really what Paul's talking about here, right? Did you note the way he talks about this? That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all things, as we have warned you, told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. This passage isn't even talking about sex and the like, oh, just avoid sex because it's bad. This is talking about not wronging each other. It's talking about living in peace and harmony. It's talking about not doing damage to one another. That's part of the reason why God asks us to live pure lives. And he asks all of us to live pure lives, young and old, married and single, divorced and widowed. All of us struggle with sexual purity in different ways. That struggle is of different intensities for different ones of us. It is in different shapes and forms. But the call is the same, holiness and purity to be set apart so that we don't hurt each other. So we're not tearing each other apart on national TV. So we're not discouraging an entire nation. So that we are not ruining each other. And listen, <laughs> if you don't want to follow this, Paul says, look, it's not that you're, you're not doing what Pastor Nate says or you're not listening to your MC leaders. You're just not listening to the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who says, my will for you, what I want for your life. 
is for you to be set apart, for you to be different, for you not to be caught up in the same things that are pulling the rest of the world down. I want more. I want more for you. I love you too much. So let's be encouraged in that today. Paul goes on in verse 9. Remember, doing what Jesus did means obeying the instructions he gave. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. Boy, is that true. That is true of this church. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You don't need me to stand up here and say, you all ought to love one another. God's already taught you how to do that. I will testify and affirm to that to anyone who asks that the people in this church know how to love each other. For indeed, that is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. In other words, not just in your hometown, not just in your little area, but there is love being spread by the brothers throughout a whole wider area that these people were known for their love. But we urge you, brothers, do it all the more. So I've asked Matt... uh, Simpson, Matt and Jamie are leaders in this church, both as missional community leaders, but also of conduits of love. The brothers in Thessalonica, they love beyond their city, and they were aggressive in doing good to others in their region. And likewise, the Simpsons are people who have pushed past their own boundaries and sought to love others. And I, I want Matt to encourage all of you today. I got a little help from Noel, our two-and-a-half-year-old, as I was preparing this week. I always wondered how this happened for pastors when they used examples from their kids. But I guess it's just, it's just something that God decides to give to them. It's a nice little gift. But um, I got a text from Jamie while I was at work, and it was one of those, Mommy says this, Noel says this, Mommy says this, Noel says this. And I guess Noel uh, went up to Jamie and said, Mommy, do you know Jesus died on the cross? And Jamie said, yes, do you know why? And she said, because he wasn't being careful. <laughs> and at first, yeah, I had the same reaction. That's, that's really funny. Um, but then I, then I actually started to think about it. I was like, you know what? She's right. Um, God, Jesus' love is not careful at all. It's reckless and it's sacrificial. And that's the way that he calls us to love, love each other. Um, one of the passages that struck a chord with us recently is Matthew 25, 40, where Jesus says, you're probably familiar with it, the sheep and the goats and judgment day. And Jesus says, whatever you did to the least of these, you did it to me. And I think about that and I think, do I really believe that? Do we really believe that? We don't think we see Jesus every day, hungry, thirsty, naked, homeless, but there are plenty of people around us in this city and children who don't receive the love on a daily basis that that we've received, and they're not provided for. Bob Goff, um, if you're not familiar with him, you should definitely check him out. Uh, He's the author of Love Does and Everybody Always. He puts it this way in um, the second book. Jesus said, when we give away love freely to one another, and meet the needs of poor and needy and isolated and hurting people, we're actually doing it for him. This has been a great reminder for me, especially when it's difficult to see Jesus when I look at those needy and hurting people. For the last year, we've had two foster boys living with us, 
And many of you here in this room have helped us out and helped love them through providing childcare, diapers, clothes, and caring for them here at church. We're very grateful for that support and how you have shown Jesus's love with us. And for those who may not know the whole situation, I wanted to share just a couple stories um, today that kind of illustrate a way that um, love, the way that we're supposed to love is not very careful. So the first story is just kind of a little background about how we got involved and how this started. We learned about an organization called Safe Families about 10 years ago when we were living in Chicago. And we thought it was neat. We saw other people in our church doing it. And we thought, wow, that's something we'd really like to do. However, our circumstances and the choices that we were making in our lifestyle just didn't allow it. it didn't, we didn't have the margin to do something like that. Um, we were basically you know, going to church, doing good Christian things. We were pursuing the American dream, um, trying to climb the corporate ladder, make as much money as we could to have a comfortable, easy life and provide for our family. Um, none of those things need to be bad in and, in and of themselves. But we actually had to make changes in our lives um, in our circumstances to create space to love these kids in this way. So about two years ago, I left my job that was keeping me on the road four days a week and really keeping me from being as involved in church as I should be through missional community because I was always gone. Um, and then um, in order to do something like this, uh, opening our home. And really what I discovered leaving that job was that that was an idol of security to me. I, I thought that I was controlling my future. It was a perceived control, but um, there was a lot of unknowns uh, in leaving that job and jumping into something very different that didn't have the same promise of uh, future and financial security. And I realized that I needed to trust God and that he had a better plan. So he provided a job that lets me be home more, gives me more flexibility, and he's just continued to provide every step of the way in different ways um, over the last two years, even when it seemed really hard or we weren't sure how it was going to happen. Um, so it hasn't been an easy road. Loving the boys can be difficult at times, and our life is pretty much just chaos, as anybody with five kids, eight and under, can attest to, right? <laughs> There's a few others in this room. Uh, so it's, it's not comfortable, it's not careful, it's not easy at all. Um, and as hard as it is with the boys sometimes, it's even harder sometimes loving their mom when we have interactions with her and as we have over the last year. Um, so this second story illustrates a time where I was really convicted in uh, my thoughts and motivations and how I was interacting with her and just why we were doing what we were doing. Um, so you may have seen their mother with us a couple times here at church. We would go pick her up on the east side and drive her over here and drive her back to the east side after church. And it was after one of those days, uh, after doing that drive and being away from my family most of Sunday, I dropped her off, and she basically just got out of the car, didn't say goodbye, no thank you, not really, she didn't really acknowledge me the whole way. Um, there were some drives where we'd have good conversations, but this was just not one of those days. And I just felt totally taken advantage of and like, why am I doing this? And the Holy Spirit just convicted me. And 
I had to say, really, why am I doing this? What are my motivations? Am I doing this to change the world, to see her life get turned around, to get a pat on the back, to get some sort of recognition or acknowledgement? And I, I just felt like I was being told, all I'm asking you to do is love. Just love her. You're not responsible for the outcome. You're not going to change her. You can't make help her make different decisions, even if she never changes, even if nothing ever gets better. Just love her. That's all I'm asking you to do. And that was a really uh, significant turning point for me. Um, and there's a ton of freedom in that when we're loving each other, when we're loving those around us, that even if they continue to take advantage of that and abuse it, that's essentially how Jesus loved us before um, we had already had turned our hearts towards him. While we were sinners, he loved us. And by his grace, that's the love that changes people and changes um, their hearts towards towards him. So as I was saying before, perhaps the best part of this of how this passage has been applied in our situation is through all of you. Our missional community has opened their homes and welcomed our kids. Several couples and families in this room have watched the boys so we can have a break or get things done uh, in different times. So if you remember anything from what I talked about, I just have kind of three things. First is accept this call um, to love each other. Second, take a step in your life to create margin to allow yourself to be able to love other people. And then lastly, this sometimes is the hardest part, is be willing and make yourself able to receive love from other people, um, how you guys have, have loved on us. Thank you. I mean, that's powerful. Thank you, Matt. Thanks, Jamie. You guys, look, Paul said it best. Y'all already are doing these things. This church loves well. I do what Jesus did by obeying the instructions he gave me. And he asked me to love each other. He asked all of us to love one another. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly, mind your own affairs, keep to your own business, and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Go to work tomorrow and work hard this week. This is God's will for your life. I've asked Harry Howe to come up and share. Harry and Grace Howe, they joined our community um, really last December. And after years of faithful ministry at Parkview Church, which was Bethesda Church for a long time, Bethesda sent Harry and Grace to us as a gift. Oh my gosh, and what a gift. As part of that church's support for all of us and what God's doing here, they sent Harry and Grace. And Harry's passion is for work and its relationship to our spiritual lives. And Harry has been active with so many of you, helping with resumes and helping people find jobs and get help. And, and honestly, like I've, I've asked Harry, to, Harry Harry's, my, Harry's my mentor. Harry, I go to Harry and I ask Harry for advice and to speak into my life because he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And I can't think of anyone better to ask about how to think about our work and our lives and our jobs. Thank you, Nate. I would like to share with you just a few of the things that the Bible has to say about our work. There's a lot of misinformation and, and myths that surround work. 
one of them being, for example, that work is part of God's curse, but that's not the truth. And then I'm going to share a few personal experiences and observations. So let's get started by taking a look at what the Bible really says about our work. And the first and foremost um, point that God makes about our work is that it's a high calling. God has called us to work, and it was a part of his perfect design for creation. And so that is an important thing to remember. Um, if you're thinking that work is part of the curse, that is not true. God originally called Adam to work in the garden long before the curse. So think of your work as a high calling. The second thing I would share is that the fall of man certainly did have an effect on our work. And God told Adam that it would be by the sweat of his brow that he would put food on the table for his family and that his workplace would be cursed with thorns and thistles. And so in today's 21st century economy, the thorns and the thistles often take the form of things like a bad boss or a toxic workplace or backstabbing coworkers or unethical competitors. Those are the thorns and thistles that we face. Um, and another thing that I would share with you is that our work really matters to God. And so if we go back to the Old Testament and look for the very first recorded instance when God sent his spirit to help somebody in a very special supernatural way, you might think, well, it's probably a prophet. But no, the fact of the matter is the first time that God sent his spirit to supernaturally provide wisdom and skill to somebody is found in Exodus 31 when God appointed a craftsman to help with the furnishings of the tabernacle. That was the first time that God sent his spirit in that very special way, a craftsman, not a prophet. And the fourth thing I would share with you that the Bible tells us is that we each have a calling and that there are no second-class callings with God. And so he's, he's given each of us a very unique package of gifts and talents that we can develop into skills. And he has used that, given those to us for some very specific roles and activities that we would have. And so if you're thinking there are several tiers of callings with maybe pastors being at the top and uh, you know, other, the rest of us kind of, well, that, that's just not what the Bible teaches. Um, the Bible will tell us that we each have a unique calling and that in God's economy, every one of us has something that he's given us to do that is significant and one is not more important than the other. He's each given us our own unique calling. And if we're going to be worthy of that calling, that means we've got to be fully devoted to God, looking to him 
to provide us the strength and the wisdom to fulfill that calling. And um, on the other side of the coin, if, if you are laboring and uh, your achievement is all about trying to outdo the Joneses or for the love of money or chasing the American dream, envy of others, that is not going to provide the satisfaction and the contentment that God would have you um, get from your calling. So with that, let me just, uh, that background, let me just share briefly three observations from my own personal experience in trying to live out God's calling in the marketplace. The first thing I, first observation I would share is it's kind of both good news and bad news. And it is the observation that the bar is set really low. And by that, I mean that if you do no more than show up on time and do what you said you're going to do, you will stand out. And uh, so it's easy to stand out just by doing what you said you were going to do and, and showing up on time. The second observation I would have is that our faith and our work should be integrated. And so um, it's important to uh, think of your workplace as your mission field. And, and so my mission field is the Indianapolis business community. So try and be intentional and, and thinking about where you're working as your mission field. Um, as Jesus said, the harvest is ready and uh, it's, it's ripe. And so I will tell you that uh, the workplace is ripe for harvest if you're attentive and intentional about that. And my final thought is that the Bible is relevant for Monday through Friday, plus Saturday, and not just Sunday. And um, in particular, I would say that uh, the book of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes are rich with um, practical wisdom for winning at work, for living your life successfully, and for leading with confidence. Thank you. Look, getting up and going to work on Monday to supply your needs and to have something to give to other people, that is holy work. Your passion project, your dead-end job, your main gig, your side hustle, it is all important to God Jesus cares about your job. Going to work, making a living, making it happen. This is God's will for your life. That's beautiful. There's no such thing as secular or sacred or who signs your paycheck. None of these things have any connection to God's call on your life. Here at Soma, uh, Pastor Andrew and I, we both uh, have other jobs. Pastoring this church is our passion. It's our life, but we both have other jobs. Pastor Bobby earns his living from Soma Church. That's the way it's supposed to be. These things are the same thing. We, we are all here to serve you, and part of the reason why we do that and emphasize that is to remind all of us 
of the holy calling that we have to work, that this is the Lord's command. This is what Jesus asked us to do. We keep going, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Sex, loving each other, going to work, the end of days. These are all the things that Paul's saying that Jesus talked to us about. I've asked Krista Manahan to come and share because she is a leader and a spiritual mother in this community. I can tell you that every time there is a woman in any kind of crisis, Deb and I call Krista first. She helps to coordinate our missional community. And when your darkest hour comes, you can know that she, as someone who is been a conqueror through some of life's worst storms, will be there to hold your hand and make you a cup of tea and help walk you through to the other side. It might be coffee. <laughs> Depends how bad things are. Um, this is a little background in talking about grief. Um, the grief that I can specifically talk about involving death is really old. Um, my mom died suddenly when I was 12, and that is almost 30 years ago. So, <laughs> little math for you. But, um, so this is really old. Since then, I've had a lot of other people I love die too, because that's how things happen, <laughs> and had other losses. But um, when I realized I was going to talk about this, what I was struck about this passage is that I remember it being read at my mom's funeral. Um, this thought that when our loved ones die, they go to heaven and they wait for us and we will see them again is a hope that I knew about when I was four whenever I started knowing about things, like Noel asking questions. I mean, this was just always a part of the back of my head. And what I was thinking is that to live what Jesus wants us to live means that this truth is just in the back of our heads. <laughs> it's nothing grand or, because I'm going to tell you, if this happens to you on the day that it happens, this truth will do nothing to help you. <laughs> I mean, it will if you hang on to it and just keep taking a step, but you will feel just as awful as the person who doesn't have this to hold on to. Like, the grief that you feel when you lose somebody is awful. And Jesus, in this verse, doesn't say, don't grieve like the people who think it's awful. <laughs> he doesn't say, don't be really sad. He doesn't say, don't, don't you know, whatever. He just says, don't stop hoping. That's it. So, and I think hope looks like the willingness to just believe the truth. 
not even act on it. Truth is, you may just sit in a pile of your own grief for a while. And that's how it is. But this truth gives you hope. And that hope means that you get up and you just keep doing what you do. I just thought grief kind of lasts forever, too. Like, this is something that affects me now. It affects me differently now, but it still affects me. And I think when Nate asked me to talk about this, I said, this is really old. I don't have a new story. And Deb said, I, I think you talk about it about once a year. It affects you at least 30 years later. But what I also realized is that same hope that was taught to me when I was four and then was read at my mom's funeral was also read at my grandparents' funerals. And I know now and is always in the back of my head. I will see them. They're waiting for me together. Like, and it's always there. And it does change things over time. And that's what I thought Jesus' truth does. We face every struggle that the rest of the world faces. The only difference is that we have a place to fall back on that we know is truth, and that gives us hope. Live, live as people of hope in a world beset by decay, Believe in redemption, in restoration, in resurrection, that things will be made right again. Do what Jesus did by obeying his commands. We finish the chapter with verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you see it now? <laughs> encourage one another with these words. There were dozens of people I could have asked to come up and share. On Friday night, I was with brothers and sisters who were encouraging each other and transformational change. There are those that I'd ask that, that couldn't be here this morning. But I, I know so many of you do and encourage these things in one another. That's what God's will is for us, that we keep driving each other forward. Look, we're all going to struggle with sexual holiness. Encourage one another. We will all struggle to love one another. Encourage one another. We all hate our jobs sometimes. Encourage one another. We will all lose hope in the face of decay and death. Encourage one another. You want to know God's will for your life? This is it. This is God's will for your life. I am not the keeper of it. Andrew is not the keeper of it. Pastor Bobby is not the keeper of it. Jesus gave it to all of us and said, encourage one another to keep doing it all the more. It's already in place. It's already in your lives. Build each other up in it. We come to the part of our service where we take communion together. One bread, a cup that we all share as a reminder that we all participate and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, that his body and his blood made us one body and made us one blood so that we could fulfill his will for our lives. Holiness and purity and love and contribution and hope, hope in the face of even the worst that life has. If you're a believer, take part in this with joy and celebrate. If you don't know Jesus and you want something more for your life, if you want to 
fulfill God's will for you, then we want to talk to you. These things aren't magic. Nothing special is going to happen. But yet something truly special happens every day and every week here. Let's pray together. Jesus God, Lord, we hear your command to us. And we thank you for your word, which is true. And we thank you that your word is to help us and not to harm us, to heal us and not restrict us, to free us and not divide us. Lord, we submit our hearts to you, and we thank you for the grace to do the things that you've asked of us. We love you. Amen.